Welcome to Stories from the Heart. I'm your host, Sandra McDevitt. Today on Stories from the Heart, the true story of two good men of different backgrounds who meet because of an impending disaster. Can one of the men save the other man's life? Stay tuned for a powerful story on another Stories from the Heart. They didn't know each other, these two men. They never met, and indeed there was no reason why they should have. They would have gone their separate ways too, if it were not for the sudden event that thrust them together. Even the cheer of Christmas just five days ahead had done little to soften the harshness of the lower west side streets of New York City. For Reginald Andrews, a 29-year-old father of eight little children in Harlem, It was an especially gloomy morning. He'd been out of a job for more than a year, and once again his daily search for work had yielded the all-too-familiar results. One job was filled. At the other, the interviewer had said, We'll call you if you're needed. Now, as he waited in the dingy subway station for a train to take him back uptown, he tried to think about what his mother had told him as a boy when things didn't go right. No matter how bad things get, she said, if you keep your faith in God and try to do good, it will give you the power to overcome trouble. Don't you forget that. Since things had been tough for Reggie growing up, he had tried, tried hard to remember. As a boy, he'd helped the older folks in his apartment building carry their groceries upstairs. Recited over and over the Ten Commandments his mother had taught him. And when he was a teen, He'd organized games to keep youngsters off the street. But at least there had been food to eat, a warm place to sleep. Now with eight hungry children and a desperate wife crammed into a small apartment, it was hard to remember, harder to believe. There would be no Christmas presents for the children, no Christmas dinner. And for Reggie Andrews, no hope for any of those things. It was a dark morning, too, for a 75-year-old grandfather from the Bronx. But then for David Schneer, since the day as a soldier during World War II, when he stepped on a landmine, every day had been dark. David is blind. But David wasn't feeling gloomy. In fact, he was anxious to get to his job, having finished an early morning errand. Any self-pity he might have had, and truly he'd known a lot, was lost 38 years earlier while recovering in an army hospital in Valley Forge, and it was there that he found men far worse off than himself, or so it seemed to him, the soldiers who'd lost arms and legs. Yet these men talked cheerfully to him. That's when David decided that how he'd reacted to his blindness was up to him. He could be swallowed up in self-pity or do the best he could with what he had. More than anyone else, it was Father Carroll who helped him decide. Though the priest and David were of different faiths, he found Father Carroll an inspiration. Father Carroll always called God the boss, 
And you always do what the boss wants, he'd bellow. Eventually, David left the hospital, his head held high. A reasonably secure living assured by his disability payments. But deep down, he felt the boss had work for him to do. In the hospital, David had found that he had a knack for helping other veterans getting their papers in order, arranging benefits and like. So after his discharge, he started full-time volunteer work for the Veterans Administration, visiting patients, boosting morale to their needs. Now David married, raised a family, had three grandchildren. The Blind Veterans Association asked him to become their official representative at the United Nations. And then he began serving on the New York State Advisory Committee to the Commission for the Blind and Visually Handicapped. His pay for all this work? Only the deep satisfaction of doing something to help others, of doing what the boss wanted him to do. That's how these two strangers found themselves standing near each other on a grimy subway platform under 8th Avenue and 14th Street on that Monday morning about 20 minutes before 10. Reggie had spent his last 75 cents to buy a token for the ride home, so he hadn't bought a newspaper, but there was a New York Daily News in a nearby trash bin. He was about to fish it out for the job ads when a graffiti-covered train came screeching into the station. Its doors banged open. As people got out, Reggie got ready to get on, but out of the corner of his eye, he saw a man with a cane probing the open space between two of the subway cars. That blind man thinks that empty space is the car's doorway, Reggie said to himself. Then suddenly the man tumbled off the platform onto the track six feet below. The blind man was David Schneer. If Reggie Andrews had thought even for a moment about the possible consequences of what he would do next, he may not have done it at all. Well, maybe he did and it didn't matter. Or maybe he thought about his sister blinded in a shooting in the same subway only a few years earlier. Without hesitation, Reggie raced over to the spot where David had fallen, all the while shouting over his shoulder to a woman, Stop the train! Then leapt down onto the same dark space between the subway cars. David was sprawled across the rails with blood streaming from a deep gash in his forehead. Inches from his hand was the third rail, alive with 600 volts of electricity. My cane broke! My cane broke! David kept repeating as Reggie knelt over him. Just keep him calm until the police get here, Reggie thought. But suddenly, a sharp hiss split his thoughts. The motorman was releasing the air brake to start the train. They don't know we're down here, Reggie thought. God help us. He gasped out loud over the drumming of the electric motors. As the steel wheels began to move, Reggie locked David in his arms and rolled sideways until they were both jammed underneath a narrow overhang on the platform. Reggie cringed as the wheels slowly passed them. He knew that the protruding pickup shoe for the third rail would electrocute them both if it touched either one of them. Why isn't the train stopping? He could hear people screaming and running on the platform above him. Kathy Callahan, the woman he had shouted at, had run to the front of the train to tell the motorman to stop. Finally, as Reggie pressed David tightly against the wall, brakes screeched and the train shuddered to a stop. There was a bit of room to move now. Reggie pulled out a handkerchief and pressed it down on David's gash to stop the bleeding. Taking off his coat, he pillowed it under David's head. 
Man, now don't worry, he kept saying. You're going to be all right. Then for a few moments, they lay perfectly still. Reggie wondering if the train was going to start moving again until, under the car ahead of him, he saw a dark shape wriggling down the track. It was a police officer with his walkie-talkie, and he was calling for the power to be shut off. Soon, a couple of paramedics joined him beneath the subway car, dragging a stretcher behind them. Placing David on it, they carried him back to a space between cars and hoisted him back onto the platform. Reggie crawled along behind him, wincing in pain as he went. In the leap, he had wrenched his knee, and now it was swelling. Ambulances took both men to a nearby hospital. David was okay, just that ugly gash and an awful fright. Reggie had torn some ligaments in his knee. A doctor bandaged it, gave him a crutch, and told him to stay off it for a few days. Then, for the first time, really, the two men had a chance to exchange a few words. Thank you, thank you, David kept repeating, shaking the hand of the man he couldn't see. God bless you, Reggie answered. Then the two went their separate ways. Reggie limped back to that same subway station at 8th Avenue and 14th. But it was only when he got to the token booth and reached in his pocket that he remembered he had no money left to pay the fare. The token seller and the policeman, who hadn't been there during all the excitement, shook their heads when Reggie tried to explain his predicament. They'd heard it all before, they said. So, with his best pants ripped and bloody, Reggie Andrews leaned nearly helpless on his crutches, begging for fair money. It was nearly an hour before a young man dropped three quarters into his hand. Back in his own neighborhood, Reggie tried to explain the crutch, but no one believed him. Man, you'd do anything to get out of work, they chided him. But all that changed the next morning, when the phone in the storefront church five fights below, the Andrews' apartment began jingling, incessantly. You see, their own phone had been disconnected. They simply couldn't afford it. All day, Reggie talked with newspaper and TV reporters, insisting he'd done nothing anyone else would not have done. Reggie's wife, Elaine, wearily answered the phone calls, but when she picked up one, her eyes grew wide. This lady says she's the president's secretary, she whispered, handing the phone to her husband. When Reggie got on the line, the woman said, Reginald Andrews, the president of the United States, would like to talk to you. I didn't know if it was a joke or for real, Reggie would say later. But as the man who came on the other end of the phone talked, Reggie's hand started to shake. It was the president. And here they were talking like two ordinary men. He told me to be sure and take care of my knee because he had played football and knew how bad knee injuries could be. And he promised Reggie he'd call the company who'd interviewed him and recommend him for the job. So, just a day after Reggie had begged for subway fare home, he was hired for a job, and there was food on the table and the promise of Christmas gifts for his children. For the briefest of moments, the lives of two men had become intertwined, and David Schneer who had offered himself to his country and to his fellow humans in need, found that in times of his own need, someone was there to help him too. And Reggie Andrews found again that just as his mother had taught him, if he kept his faith in God and tried to do good, that the Lord would give him power, great power to overcome trouble. They hadn't known each other, these two men. They'd never met, and indeed there was no reason why they should have for they were very different people, but their caring was the same.
Thank you for joining us on Stories from the Heart. Today's true story, Two Good Men, was written by Richard Schneider, published in Guidepost Magazine. For a copy of this or any of my stories, email Sandra at AveMariaRadio.net. Stories from the Heart is recorded in the studios of Ave Maria Radio. I'm Sandra McDevitt. May God bless the rest of your day. Missed a show? Not sure if it came from Ave Maria Radio? Go to AveMariaRadio.net. A list of shows and hosts are there. And if you find the show you're looking for, you can hear the whole thing again by going through the Ave Maria Radio audio archives. For two years, we've recorded nearly every show from Ave Maria Radio. Just click on the audio archives message located at the center of our homepage. Now you even have more reasons to become a radioactive Catholic by going to AveMariaRadio.net.